This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. I'm Jesse Puji, and this is Business Breakdowns. Today, we are doing a different kind of breakdown. We are covering an entire category, Amazon aggregators. These are the companies that are buying up hundreds of Amazon's third-party sellers. The concept of Amazon aggregators is relatively new, tracing back to 2018 with the founding of Thrasio. But the ecosystem is already huge and growing. Most recent numbers peg it at around $300 billion in revenue and growing faster than Amazon itself. These aggregators have unique modes and high-quality entrepreneurs. To help break down the marketplace and business of acquiring Amazon storefronts, I'm joined by Ali Ahmed, a partner of CoVenture, who was also a very popular guest on Invest Like the Best. In our conversation, we discuss the three superpowers Amazon sellers have, why there's only $8 billion in funding for a market doing $50 billion in EBITDA, and we go into detail on how Amazon aggregators are structured and operate. Please enjoy this unique breakdown on Amazon aggregators. Ali Ahmed, welcome to Business Breakdowns. Thanks for having me. Honored to be here. We're going to jump right in. Can you start by telling us, we've all heard this word thrown around in the business world these days, Amazon aggregator. What is an Amazon aggregator? Well, to back up, Amazon.com is sort of a big e-commerce business that you can buy a bunch of stuff from. It turns out that often when you're buying stuff from Amazon, you're not actually buying it from Amazon itself. You're buying it from third-party sellers often and usually. And there's really three types of Amazon third-party sellers. There's resellers. They take items that are made by somebody else. They pick them off shelves and they try to sell them on Amazon. And the margins there are really low. There's vendors who sell to Amazon and Amazon then sells to us. You give up control of your storefront. You let Amazon do a lot of the work for you, but it's a little bit easier. And the main type, and usually when people are talking about Amazon aggregators and Amazon third-party sellers, they're talking about Amazon FBA businesses. FBA stands for Fulfilled by Amazon. And these are people who come up with an idea. They get it manufactured. It can be manufactured domestically. But more often in Vietnam or Thailand or China or wherever, you get it shipped to the United States or wherever your consumer is. It stays in the Amazon warehouse and they use an Amazon storefront to sell your product. Amazon aggregators run around and go buy up these storefronts. If you think about what these storefronts are, they're small businesses. They sell all kinds of things. Might sell whiteboards, beauty creams, scissors, anything. And what you do is you basically buy these seller accounts you get the ASIN, you get the SKUs, you get the inventory, you get the reviews, the comments, all the assets, and you continue to operate them. The thought being that an Amazon aggregator finds these seller accounts more valuable than the seller themselves does because the operator, the aggregator, is able to operate at scale. They often have a point of view that post-purchase, they might be able to improve the assets. And so basically what these aggregators do is they run around, they raise a bunch of debt capital, they raise a bunch of equity capital, They use that capital to go buy these assets at what they think are reasonable prices and then operate them. And how big is this market? Give us a sense for scale, revenue-wise, EBITDA, in broad strokes. 
So this was the part that shocked us the most and is what got us really obsessed with the space. Um, about $300 billion of revenues per year is done by these Amazon third-party sellers. And that might be an outdated number. And generally, these businesses are able to operate at something like 15 to 25% net margins. Let's call it 20%. So it's a market that's about $60 billion of addressable EBITDA. And shockingly, is growing anywhere between 30 and 50% CAGR. So this wow. is a market that we think is going to be a $100 billion plus EBITDA market. And I don't know what it'll trade at at maturity, as low as six to eight times, maybe as high as 10 times. I don't know if interest rates say at zero, 100 times, whatever. We think this is going to be between half a trillion and a trillion dollar market. If you think about it, what that means from the debt perspective, since this is a fairly levered space, if you were to try to lever up this EBITDA at something like four times, which would not be that aggressive, it would be actually quite conservative. We think something like 250-ish billion dollars of capital can come into the space today. And over time, close to $500 billion of capital. We think this is a really, really big deal for capital markets because not only are these big businesses, but they're voracious users of capital. It's great for anybody who's in the investing business. From a market value perspective, we think it's just massive. You started explaining a little bit of the structure of Amazon. I want to talk more about the different types of stores and aggregators, but maybe a quick history lesson on the history of this. When did third-party sellers come into play? Why did they come into play? Why does Amazon have them? Just give us a sense for a little bit of the backdrop here. Amazon didn't always act as friendly to the Amazon third-party sellers as it does today. Amazon has a history of potentially competing with Amazon third-party sellers or trying to launch its own products. And I think there's this sort of false narrative that Amazon still wants to sell everything in their store. In fact, Amazon Basics generally tries to pursue being the everything store and tries to just basically fill in gaps in the market. Make sure that no matter what you want to buy on Amazon, there's a reasonably good option for you. And if you listen to the earnings calls or anything that Amazon puts out, they'll often comment on the fact that they actually make higher margins on Amazon third-party sellers than they do their own stuff. They're able to essentially be a service provider to these Amazon third-party sellers where they charge them for the warehousing, the shipping, the payments, the whole thing. Actually, 40% of revenues of an Amazon seller often go to Amazon. It's actually not so bad for Amazon without taking any of the inventory risk or the product risk or anything like that. Amazon realized that they couldn't even compete with their own third-party sellers. It turns out that free markets are actually a pretty powerful source. And Amazon competing against the free markets was not going to be a very good strategy. And so they started leaning into this new form of growth. The other things that I think encouraged Amazon, although I don't know, but you have to imagine the antitrust conversation made them more excited about being a highway of small business as opposed to trying to sell everything themselves. So I think that was a really big deal. When did it start? Everyone knows Amazon.com started. There's this website we went to. Do you know when-ish they started inviting third parties? And then when did that become more of a focus for the business? How has it grown over the years? I don't know the exact date, but I think it was in 2013 or 14 that you started seeing the very first Amazon third-party sellers. We've talked to a handful of people that actually had seller accounts back then. I think a combination of Amazon not providing the same level of service to third-party sellers at the time... Amazon not allowing people to transfer ownership of third-party seller accounts made it lack liquidity. The size of the market was a lot smaller then. If you even think about where we are today, let's call it $300 billion of revenue in 2021, $200 billion of revenue in 2020, a much smaller number in a little over $100 billion or so in 2019. This wasn't even an investable space before because in 2014 and 15, Amazon was still trying to launch its own products more aggressively. You didn't have the ability to transfer assets. The market wasn't very big. And so you have these sort of OGs selling as Amazon third-party sellers, but none of them ever launch as aggregators. It wasn't until I think Thrasio might have been started in 2019, if not 2018, that you really had the first aggregator come into the market and turn this into a marketplace where you could buy and sell your businesses. 
What is the split between Amazon and then Amazon third-party sellers from a total GMV perspective for Amazon? Right now, we believe it's about two-thirds Amazon third-party sellers and one-third Amazon, plus or minus. That's not an exact answer. You've mentioned FBA a couple of times, Ali, in this 40% that Amazon takes. Can you break that down a little bit? How does it work? Is it a bunch of individual services? Is it one standard thing they take? Just give us a sense for the economics there. What Amazon does is it charges you line by line for the services they provide. That could be storage, that could be shipping, that could be payments, that could be whatever. And what's charged to the Amazon third-party seller is mostly in that 40% range. If it's not 40, it's 43% or 39%. It depends largely. The biggest variance, I believe, is the weight of what you're selling and how much space it takes up. So it's more about the product itself and what it takes to ship that product than anything else. Let's talk a little bit more about the stores in particular. So you said there's $300 billion in revenue today. Roughly how many stores is that? Individual storefronts? It's roughly 100,000 that we think are addressable. So there's 100,000 of these stores. And can you give us a couple examples of stores and maybe even like what it looks like on the inside of it? You keep calling them small businesses. So explain what they look like. An Amazon seller account or one of these businesses that you might buy often sells a hero SKU. So this is a product that they sell better than all their others. And then a handful of other SKUs that may be somewhat related. They might be variations or something similar. But often they're fairly diversified and they're usually in one category. That might be home and goods. It might be in electronics. It might be in sleep and kitchenware. And so what you're doing is you're basically going in and you're buying the seller central account and all the associated assets that the business has that they can then use to go sell products through their Amazon storefront. Really, when we think about the value of a lot of these businesses, you can look at the cash flows, you can look at the assets they have. But more than anything, you're really trying to buy what's quote unquote, their real estate within Amazon. We think about these businesses and we talk about what makes them so wonderful and what you're really buying. By the way, there's negatives with these businesses too, but the sort of three most positive attributes is that they have comment and review modes. What I mean by that is you might be ranked really highly in some random category, but if you have 50,000 reviews and your second best competitor has 20,000, you have a really big barrier to entry because the Amazon ranking algorithm is not some big black box. You know, If you think of an industry like Google, a platform like Google, or Facebook Timeline, or TikTok, it's really unpredictable how things get ranked. On Amazon, it turns out that if you have the most comments, you have the most reviews, you're ranked highly, you don't run out of stock often, and you price competitively, you're going to be ranked highly. You're looking for these assets that have that comment review mode. And then the other things that they often have that are associated is... They have manufacturing relationships that can be trusted, a robust supply chain, or often you can apply your supply chain to their supply chain to make it more robust, add some redundancy, make sure you can more consistently get inventory. You have what we like to think of as high margins. The reason is if you're ranked really highly and you have that comment and review mode, you end up having high margins because you don't have to spend the same amount of money on ads that a normal e-commerce website might have to spend money on. And finally, what you're buying is all the infrastructure that are getting through Amazon through their FBA program. So what's really amazing is the P&L of a lot of these Amazon third-party sellers is highly variable. If you look at the P&L of one of these businesses, they might do $100 of revenue. They might be spending $30 on COGS, $40 on Amazon FBA, and about $10 on overhead expenses. So what you end up buying is a product that may or may not be hard to manufacture, may or may not be hard to find a manufacturer for, but what you're really buying is their presence and their quote-unquote real estate within the Amazon ecosystem. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. If we flip it around just a little bit to talk about from a store's vantage point, how do these guys start? 
who are they? Who are starting an Amazon store? How many people do they tend to have? What are their average sales? Like, just give us a sense for that 300 billion divided by 100,000. Like, what are all these little stores out there? Often it starts as somebody who has a day job. They have an idea for a product. They've been making it in their basement, their garage, a side room, whatever it might be, selling it on Amazon, and it starts to take off. That might be because they're in a new category. So as an example of a category that's becoming wildly popular on Amazon, it's pickleball. Pickleball is a sort of new sport. It's growing really quickly. It turns out that if you were selling pickleball years ago, you were kind of a first mover. And as the market grew, you grew with it. As categories get too big, what often happens is they attract large companies who want to spend a lot of ad money to try to buy promoted spots on the top of the page. So you have to be careful about figuring out a category that's underserved or about to grow where you can be one of those first movers. By the way, a lot of people use pay-per-click strategies to try to get themselves ranked highly initially or some sort of other mechanism. But really, the best way to do it is going to be a new entrant in a category that's not big now, but might become big later, and then accrue those reviews. So they could be anybody. I have a friend whose father sells paint that changes color when the temperature in a room or atmosphere or environment gets too hot or too cold. So there's a bunch of people out there starting businesses for any reason. They're pretty profitable. They have a good cost structure, as you said. Take us back to the early days of the kind of aggregator space. What was the initial insight? It sounds like Thrasio, a couple of the early people have. And what did they start to do? Give us a sense, the mental model for how it started to add up to being a big business. The first thing you'd ask yourself is, okay, so these businesses sound pretty good. They have high comment review modes. By the way, we think this is one of the only spaces in the world where you can sell a commodity product with a high barrier to entry without it being regulated. That's a really big deal. So you have these high barrier to entry products with high margins and variable cost P&Ls. That sounds really good, right? So why in the, in the world would anybody ever sell their business if it's so wonderful and at low multiples? Well, it turns out being a small Amazon seller is really, really hard. One reason is if you're small, it's very difficult to manage volatile cash flows. The EBITDA to cash conversion is not that obvious. Largely because if your business is organically growing, you have to keep taking the income that you're making and reinvest into inventory to keep up with growth. On top of that, it's not like growth happens on a linear basis. The holiday season is tough. The Chinese New Year is tough if you have your manufacturers in China. Because a lot of these people have somewhat flimsy supply chains, they need to be overly conservative about how much inventory they're holding at any given time. Amazon started limiting how much storage they allow in their warehouses because they don't want to be a storage company. At the same time, it turns out that supply chain has gotten harder over the last couple of years. For a lot of these Amazon sellers, you have a supply chain that's sort of flimsy because you don't have a lot of redundancy. You might not have a backup 3PL. You might not have a backup truck broker in Long Beach. You can pick up your stuff if there's not an Amazon truck available. You may not have a warehouse available in Long Beach if you need to store your stuff somewhere. You may not have quality assurance on the ground in China to make sure that the quality of the manufacturing is where you want it to be. You may not have a plan of when you should water freight something or when you should airship something if you need to come up with inventory. And by the way, the number one way to ruin your Amazon business is to run out of inventory. If you stock out too many times, Amazon will derank your listing. And what will happen is your competitors will realize that you're starting to run out of stock or starting to sell bad inventory if you didn't have quality assurance. And so they'll start spending more money on advertising to sink you. So you now have a seller account where your cash flows are volatile, where you're not getting all your EBITDA and converting into cash, where you have a supply chain that is somewhat flimsy. And if you're not big enough, you don't get a seller account manager, which is your account manager at Amazon who can help you fix problems from time to time. We had another hour. I could keep going through lists and lists of reasons that being a subscale small seller is really hard. And so it might make sense to sell. By the way, my last favorite reason is 
if you talk to a lot of these Amazon sellers and you get them on video call, they're usually some individual who hasn't seen their family in like four Christmases because Christmas is their busiest time of year. They have like bubble wrap and cardboard boxes behind them in the video screen. It is just a very hard business to run by yourself. So people want to sell. Now, the buying market is sort of odd. On one hand, it seems like there's so many aggregators out there. There's so much capital that's gone in the space. It's reported that 5 to $10 billion of capital has gone into the space. That's basically nothing. The funniest thing that we saw was Apollo gave money to Victory Park, and they gave them $500 million as reported by Bloomberg. And everyone thought, oh my gosh, what a crowded space. $500 million barely scratches the surface. It's basically like one or two loans to aggregators. If you think about that $60 billion of EBITDA today, we think the space could incur $240 billion of debt, not $500 million or $5 billion or $10 billion. So one reason the multiples are still so low is there's just still not that much capital. The other reason, which is more structural, is debt service in the space is really expensive. And here's why. All the normal providers of cheap debt, like BDCs or direct lenders, really struggle to invest in the space, largely because these types of deals don't fit in their normal mental model. In normal, regular way, LBO financing, a private equity firm runs around and tries to buy a business. They might buy it eight, 10 times EBITDA, let's say it's eight times. And basically, any direct lender will go to any high-quality equity sponsor and lever up their acquisition, call it 70 60% LTV. If you're financing a deal at 70% loan to value that was purchased at eight times, you're at a 5.6 times debt to income, sort of wide. So what you tell your LPs is like, don't worry about it. The LTV is what we really care about. And by the way, you want a low LTV for two reasons. The first is if you got the price wrong, you can still fire sale the asset without losing money. The second reason is you want the private equity fund to put money in to align your interest. If the private equity fund put no money in, they don't care if the business goes out of business or not. In the Amazon third-party seller aggregator space, it's totally different. You finance these businesses at really high loan-to-values, 80 90% type loan-to-values. But instead, you're relying on a low debt-to-income. What you do is you basically say, hey, we're going to finance this at 90% advance rate, which would be really aggressive, but you only bought the business for four times. That's a 3.6 times debt to income. These direct lenders and BDCs can't run around telling all their investors, hey, like, you remember how we told you LTV is the only thing that matters? Actually, it's not the only thing that matters. Really, there's like this whole other thing that matters. And by the way, so much of the direct lending world is so equity sponsor focused that because these businesses and aggregators don't have all the traditional equity sponsors everybody's used to, it's really hard for these cheap sources of capital coming to the space. So instead, what you have is hedge funds or credit funds or specialty lenders or esoteric credit funds financing the ecosystem with very limited amounts of capital, which has caused interest to be higher than it would be in a normal ecosystem, where both your debt service and your limitation on debt to income forces people to buy businesses at lower multiples than they would otherwise buy them. And finally, even though capital has been coming into the space, The rush of sellers who now want to sell because they now know they can sell is actually keeping pace. So you might hear people talk about the fact that multiples have risen and gone up over time. We're kind of seeing that, but not really. What we're really seeing is the marketing line of what the multiple is go higher. More seller notes, earnouts, tricks and tips of how to juice the value of an asset. I think a lot of people don't want to get into a debate about whether or not COVID created a bump in demand for certain products. So they solved that debate by just structuring earnouts into the product. There's a lot of these different reasons that these businesses have continued to be attractive to buy. That's super helpful. How many aggregators are there out there? There's a lot. I would say in Q1 and Q2 alone, we probably saw about 70 to 80 pitches. 
of people who wanted to start an Amazon third-party seller aggregator. And it was largely driven by the Thrasio financing announcements. And by the way, we're not investing in Thrasio. We have a ton of admiration for what they've built and are incredibly happy for them and, and the people who've been in that deal. But we've certainly also taken inspiration from what they've done. And when Thrasio announced that this was really an ecosystem and a space, there's sort of this rush of people trying to do the same thing. And the rush of people really came into four categories. Category one was Harvard, Stanford, and Wharton kids who were going to do search fund who thought, oh my gosh, this seems so much easier. I want to go do this. The second category was people who came from financial services, knuckleheads like me who knew how to raise money. And so they thought, gosh, it turns out buying things at three to four times EBITDA sounds like a really good idea. So like, why don't we go raise a bunch of money and go try to buy things at three to four times EBITDA? The third type was e-commerce operators who thought, I know e-commerce, Amazon seems like an easier version of e-commerce. Why not go do that? And then the fourth type, which is the type that we ended up finding most interesting, were people who were Amazon operators already, already managed Amazon third-party seller storefronts, and wanted to inorganically grow beyond where they already were. And we thought these people were really amazing because what you'll notice by the diversity of what they sell, the trick is knowing Amazon more than it is knowing the necessary product that you're selling. So we have one aggregator that owns a mobile whiteboard business, a gravy separator business, an HDMI business, a shower curtain liner business, a coffee cravat business. Like it turns out coffee cravats and gravy separators and shower curtain liners are super uncorrelated to each other. And also the product manufacturing is fairly different. We think it's a testament to the fact that these businesses rely more on the Amazon operating capability than the product itself. By the way, that's very different than direct-to-consumer and the Shopify aggregators and, and a lot of other businesses in a similar space. So your initial question was, how many are there? We saw about 100 pitches. A lot of them got funded. But our estimate is there's probably 7 to 10, quote-unquote, breakout winners. These are people who are doing $100 million plus in EBITDA, if we had to guess, although we don't really know the numbers. And there's probably about 30 to 50 behind them all over the world that are doing between 10 and $50 million of EBITDA. And there's many others that are subscale. What we've found is that those sort of mega winners that are starting to grow and break out from the rest of the crowd are able to raise capital because the differentiator between them and all the others is that they're big. But growth equity firms, private equity firms, a lot of these are investors are really struggling to figure out the differentiation between one aggregator and the next. You have to look really, really hard to decide. It's not like you have some that are saying, hey, I'm going to win the electronic space. I'm going to win the healthcare space. I'm going to win the home and goods space. A lot of them are sort of bottoms up and trying to buy any kind of asset they can. And so it makes it really difficult to figure out who's a winner. So a lot of these firms that are especially the bigger firms are saying, look, we just want to pick a jockey. We don't know who we're going to pick. So we want to wait until someone starts to break out before backing them. And the people who are largely getting lost in the middle are the ones doing between 10 and $50 million of EBITDA because they're big enough where they can't raise high net worth or family office capital, but they're not so big that they're obviously a breakout winner. We spent a lot of time kind of looking at deals like that. And then the ones that are still subscale below $10 million of EBITDA, they actually have an easier time raising money because there's still a lot of high net worth and family office capital that's interested in the space. So that's sort of the general state of play in terms of the who's out there and how big are they and, and how many opportunities there are to invest. So there's these different size of these aggregators, different types. You mentioned vertical is not important. Like, are there other strategies? I mean, we've talked about supply chain. You've talked about knowing Amazon well. You've talked about attracting capital. Are there people doing vertical plays? Is that interesting? Is it not interesting? Why? I think people have to be intentional about the verticals they're going after. And there's a lot of verticals that would inherently make sense, but actually are really hard. So electronics is really hard because electronics have short half-lives. If you know you sell things that are related to the iPhone and the iPhone changes something about its specs, that's not so good for your business. If you're in fashion or apparel, 
that's really, really difficult. Fashion goes in and out of style. So there are probably categories, whether it's home goods, that we see some stuff in healthcare. There's categories that we think are high margin, that are enduring, that could make sense over time. But one of the other challenges with an Amazon and one of the negatives of being an Amazon third-party seller is you don't really own your customer in the same way as if you had your own e-commerce website. So there's a bit of a false narrative of, I'm going to own a bunch of things in the same category and do a lot of cross-selling. That's not a strategy that we've seen work as well as people thought it would. We also haven't seen a lot of people say, I'm going to build a brand in sleep. I'm going to go buy a bunch of stuff in sleep on Amazon and then go omni-channel. It turns out that the things that are good to sell on Amazon are often very different than the things that are good to sell via Shopify or Squarespace or some other platform you could use to go direct to consumer. Amazon's really good for products that are sort of commoditized, that are hard to build a brand around, and where going direct to consumer would almost be impossible. Shopify is really good for products that you can build a brand around because either the product is interesting, memorable, you can tell a funny story around it or an intimate story or a sentimental story, something that'll help people remember. It has a name that people can resonate with. It's a high AOV product, enough value in each sale that you can spend enough money on ads and where it's high enough margin where you can keep applying money to ads. The criteria of what you would need to do to go be a category winner and win a brand so you could cross-sell and go omni-channel often isn't as elegant as most people wish it was on Amazon. It's one of the big downfalls of the Amazon third-party seller platform. I want to double-click and go through like almost like a case study of what happens in this world. And it seems like you know better than anybody. You've given a couple examples, gravy separator, shower curtain. I'm going to fill in some of the blanks, but you can help us. So I'm a mom and pop. I started this shower curtain business five years ago on Amazon. It does... I'm going to make up a number of 5 million in top line and a million in EBITDA. And it just kind of grew through my blood, sweat, and tears of learning Amazon. An aggregator comes along. Talk to me about how that happens. How do they find them? And then talk to me about how they ended up paying whatever multiple they pay. Most of these sale processes are still largely driven by brokers. And the brokers very quickly figure out which Amazon aggregators are real and which ones aren't. A lot of them are fundless sponsors. They run around, they find an asset they want to buy. And then they go try to raise the money to see if they can go raise it and go buy the asset. And the brokers get pretty smart when they figure out who's actually got money and who doesn't. Sometimes aggregators will do press releases to prove to the market that they have money. The challenge is you have to tell people who you are. Of the 10 or so aggregators that we think are really large, we think seven of them that, that by the way, have an aggregation strategy. There are a lot of Amazon sellers that are actually huge that aren't even aggregators that most people don't know about. But of the aggregators that have this business model, we think of the top 10, probably seven have been announced. Three of them, really small, mostly bootstrapped, and they just don't want to tell anybody about themselves. So they have to build a reputation of closing the LOIs that they sign and having committed capital. And what normally happens is an Amazon seller works with a broker. The broker puts together a glossy deck. And the revenues are really easy to diligence because the revenues are largely diligenceable by going through the Amazon data. And it's a semi-immutable source. I mean, Amazon could be committing fraud. We have taken the view that they're probably not, especially not on behalf of another seller. Although we're a pretty paranoid group, so we don't rule it out. The hard part is really making sure you underwrite the expenses. And there are consultants that you can use that are used to running diligence on these Amazon sellers. And they look for fake reviews. They look at, are you reporting all the accounts to us? For a lot of these seller accounts, you want to build the expenses bottoms up because you can't assume. It's one of those things where you don't know the unknown unknowns. And it's sort of errors of omission. One of the things that we always joke about when we're negotiating a legal document is it's really easy to edit what's already in the document. It's really hard to remember what's missing from the document because it was never there. The same thing is true when you're doing diligence on the expenses of an Amazon third-party seller. 
And so you end up having a broker who's given an initial point of view. By the way, the broker has some obligation for its brand to like not market crappy businesses. Then you usually hire a consultant that either use software tools or some other methodology of going through the reviews, making sure that they're genuine, making sure that it hasn't been black hat activity. One of the main things that you're looking for is also ensuring that these Amazon third-party sellers are not breaking the terms of services of Amazon. We often joke, if people could actually watch me, I'm putting my hand low. There's the US Constitution, and then higher than that is the Amazon terms of services in terms of like how these Amazon third-party sellers think. So the number one thing you could do to bust yourself during diligence is to have demonstrated that you break Amazon terms of services. That might be by trying to drive traffic away from Amazon or writing fake reviews for yourselves or whatever it might be. So you go through this negotiation process, you come with a price. There's usually a cash out the door price that you're willing to fund. And then some sort of seller notes and some sort of earnouts, depending on performance, a multi-month consulting period where the seller helps make sure that there's a natural transition with the manufacturer, the supply chain, everything else. And then the aggregator at that point just runs the operation by themselves. So it's the case that most of these are three to five times EBITDA and ultimately the seller is gone after a few months, which is very different than most M&A. Multiples can range wider. Sometimes they're a premium. And by the way, a premium asset on Amazon isn't the same as a premium asset you'd normally think of. So it might not be the biggest asset. It's like the most perfect asset. So for example, right. in Amazon, what you want is to own the premier asset leader in a category that's too subscale for any big player to want to compete in. That is like about as good as you can get on Amazon. So it's a bit counterintuitive that like, it's not like the bigger, the smaller you go, there's a linear relationship to the multiple you're paying. There's actually a lot more that goes into it. So for example, Amazon's ads business right now is growing very quickly, which means cost per click is getting higher. That's also being driven by the fact that paid acquisition is getting more expensive everywhere because of all these privacy rules and regulations that keep getting put in place. And so if you knew that your paid acquisition was going to get higher, you'd want to make sure that you increase your lifetime value of your customers. So businesses that sell on subscription are now more premium than they used to be. There's all these little things that are part of how you make a decision of what would be a good seller account to buy and what kind of multiple you'd be willing to pay for it. Give us a sense for the top 10 aggregators and maybe the second tier also. How many businesses are they buying in a month? The most extreme case I've ever heard, there's one aggregator that's been rumored to do a deal a week, which I think is really impressive and may or may not be true. I think it very much varies aggregator to aggregator. Some buy many small ones, some buy a handful of big ones. We see people buy as many as one or two a month. And that's pretty impressive. And these are real acquisitions. These are 5, 10, 15, $20 million acquisitions. Sometimes they're as small as 500,000 to a million. We found that the half a million to a million ones are harder, not just because it turns out that you do the same amount of work for a million acquisition that you do for a $10 million acquisition, but often they don't come with all the resources that you normally might get from a larger seller. They may not have all the comments or reviews. They may not be as big in the space. The space not, might not be big enough to grow. So generally, I would say a high-octane ag aggregator might be buying one or two a month in the seven to eight figures. They go find this thing. They negotiate it. They bring it in. Now they do a bunch of value add. And I'm curious because you've mentioned a couple types of value add. One you talked a lot about was the supply chain improving that. The other one is knowing Amazon really well. What's the most important value add post-acquisition? Unlike most rollups where cost savings is a huge part of the thesis, cost savings really isn't a big part of the thesis here because there's only so much you can do with your costs. Cogs, you're not going to suddenly buy more because it's not like if you're an aggregator, you're adding a lot of buy-in for the same manufacturer, you sell a bunch of other products. Amazon FBA, turns out you have to be really big to be able to muscle around Amazon. So none of these aggregators, no matter how big they are, are big enough to be able to negotiate significant terms with Amazon. What you're really trying to do is add redundancy in the supply chain, better planning, and better capability of making sure that you don't go out of stock. 
The real added value is on the revenue side. And each one of these aggregators has its own secret sauce. So we're not going to go too much into the detail of like how each of these aggregators improves the channels beyond sort of the most obvious ones. Some of them can add an international presence to what they do. So you could take a product that's only being sold in the US or only being sold in Southern Europe or wherever it might be, and then try to increase the markets that you might be in, which takes its own marketing collateral, languages, stuff like that. You might have an ability to do pay-per-click in a better way. Most Amazon sellers don't have access to Amazon DSP. Most don't have the capability of running a robust or sophisticated PPC strategy. So most of these Amazon operators that are selling are sort of bootstraps, fly-by-night, can't believe how big their business got. They might be good at their paid acquisition strategy, but not their supply chain. They may be good at not running out of stock, but they don't really have a good paid acquisition strategy. They may not be using software tools that allow them to figure out who in their competitive set is gaining ground or selling a good SKU, whatever it might be. Each of these sellers or aggregators really have a playbook. We have one that they have 150 steps in their playbook of all the things they can do to improve an asset once they own it. It sounds like obviously broad stability is important, but ultimately you believe that knowing Amazon really well is the true value add differentiator for these guys. Absolutely. What's the weirdest or like most unobvious thing you've heard someone do that leads to better revenue or like optimizing Amazon in some way? The weirdest or most interesting is a secret sauce of one of our portfolio companies. What we've often said, and by the way, we've seeded a handful of aggregators. What we often say is if we see one of you doing something and we don't see the rest of you doing something, we'll never say anything to the rest of you. If we see everybody doing something and one of you not doing something, we'll probably let you know that you're doing something stupid. So that's been our way of investing in the space. And it's really important that we keep confidentiality for our aggregators, which is why they've bestowed us with the trust of letting us fund them and letting us fund multiple, which we've been pretty open about. We have a handful of announcements that have been out. So we're in a company called Wonder Brands. We're in a company called Aquico. We're in a company called Benetago. We're in a company called D1. And there's a handful of other announcements that will come out as well. So it is important that we don't spill too many secrets. But I think one of like the really funny, obvious ones that everybody knows is you could take your third-party seller account and bring it to a new market. I mentioned international. If you have 50,000 reviews in a market like the United States, and the United States happens to be the biggest market for Amazon, and you move into France or Germany or Japan, you can port your reviews and comments with you and immediately you're being ranked number one there. That's like mm. kind of a really big deal. It's yeah, the type of thing on. that if you're at scale, it's just so easy and obvious to go do that. And if you're not at scale, like, do you really know anyone who could build Japanese marketing collateral for you? Probably not. It's right. probably too expensive of a lift to like make that investment. These are such unique businesses with such unique functions. Like, What does the org chart of a typical aggregator look like? The org chart of a typical aggregator is almost all of them work in pods. And so you generally have brand managers and the brand managers might be in charge of a single seller account or single ASIN. And then you might have another brand manager on top of them that manages a few GMs of a bunch of different seller accounts. By the way, if you might manage one brand manager might manage a couple smaller ones. And then you usually have the following functions. You have a marketing design person. You have somebody who might be in charge of international growth. You might be, have one person who's in charge of customer experience. And so almost every single aggregator structures their org chart nearly the same way, which is in pods. And those pods, depending on the scale and the size of the third-party seller accounts they manage, either are broad and manage multiple seller accounts or just one if it's a mega account. What about one level up from that? Is there a meaningful, I'll call it sales and marketing function where... People are trying to market to these 100,000 stores and they have a deal pipeline and Salesforce. What other functions exist? There's financing. Like, I'm curious, one level up from the operating the stores, what does it look like? The things that are unique about this space is that you end up having a larger team focused on supply chain than you might otherwise find. 
And so these are people who make sure that they have supply planning, that they're making, they're building relationships with manufacturers. You know, one of the mistakes that new sellers often make is they try to go around brokers in China, for example, thinking, gosh, like the broker I'm sure is ripping me off. And so I should really go straight to the manufacturer. It turns out your broker knows your manufacturer way better than you do. And like mm-hmm. they have more pull and power than you have because they work with many different sellers and you should work with your broker. But like having those strong relationships. And so I'd say the people who get the supply chain right and have teams dedicated to that usually do better. The other thing that's sort of interesting is the finance and operations is a lot more complicated than most people think. If you think about the purview of a CFO of one of these businesses is you have an M&A function, which is to go buy businesses. You have a capital markets function, which is to go raise debt and equity because you're, as mentioned, a voracious consumer of capital. I'm shocked that you don't have more capital markets players trying to learn about the space and be in the space because there's just so much money to make for them. Um, there's the controller function. Because again, these businesses have tons and tons of revenue, tons of cash flow bottlenecks. By the way, your capital markets function is not just doing the glorious ABL facilities or corporate loans that allow you to go do the acquisitions. You're also managing and negotiating inventory financing loans. You're negotiating factory lines, merchant cash advances, term loans. You're trying to figure out how those loans interact with your actual debt capital that's used for the acquisitions. Is that factored into your debt to income? Is, are the assets or the inventory part of that? There's a lot of stuff in there. And then you have FP&A. So I'd say the two most unique functions in these businesses are the finance function and the supply chain function. They sound like almost the definition of you have to get everything better by 2 or 3% to optimize and improve. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, it's sort of that cliche where there's businesses with one big secret and you can interrupt them because if you figure out that secret, you can repeat it. And there's other businesses with a thousand small secrets that are impossible to beat because they do a thousand small things, right? We absolutely think these are businesses of a thousand small secrets. We often talk internally as a firm that it takes 50 Bs to recognize an A. And this is also a space where it takes us like 30 to 40 minutes to know if somebody's real or not. And a lot of people say all the right answers in their first call. And as soon as you ask and double click on how they're answering one of these questions, you end up realizing there's like not a lot under the surface. If they say something like, yeah, supply chain or inventory management is really important. You say, that's awesome. Let's go deeper you end up finding that it was just a line that they used or they had done inventory planning and something else or all these like little quirky things matter. So like, for example, there's pluses and minuses. If there's a product that's really hard to manufacture, that's a barrier to entry. But it also means that it's hard to find a backup manufacturer for it because it might require a rare tool. So there's pluses and minuses to every little part of these businesses. And you're not looking for people who have silver bullet answers to all of them. Instead, you're looking for people who appreciate the difficulty of every single part. You almost yeah. want to find people who have this PTSD of like, oh my God, I've just been through so many things. This is the time that that one person tried to like black hat us and put a bunch of fake reviews on our account. This is the time that somebody reported us for selling marketing is new, but selling old. This is the time that our manufacturer like went AWOL on us for a few days. Like we're looking for the people who have endured terrible hardship to keep their business afloat where we think they'd be able to keep their future businesses afloat as well. It's such a dynamic and unique marketplace, but in some ways it reminds me of buying my wife an engagement ring, you know, I like went on Blue Nile and there's all these different criteria I could search or even like this financial stock markets. Is there anyone doing anything very creative or very different from anybody else? Like, for example, is anyone like algorithmically trading these businesses, buying them and selling? I don't know. Like, are there weird things that have popped up or interesting things that you've seen given how unique of a marketplace it is? Not as much as you're hoping I'll answer. Everybody's using data scraping and different strategies for figuring out which Amazon stores they want to go buy. Nobody really has a silver bullet answer of like, how are they finding stuff that nobody else is finding? I think a lot of people claim they do. It goes in every pitch check that they do. The reality is like they all kind of rhyme. 
right now, the main differentiation, like the wave 1.0 is go buy a bunch of aggregators in the US. Wave 2.0 is regional focused aggregators. So it might be people like Wonder Brands in Latin America buying accounts on Mercado Libre. And it turns out that Mercado Libre is similar enough to Amazon where the thesis holds, but different enough where you actually have to know Mercado Libre in a way that you don't know Amazon. We're investing in a company called Powerhouse 91, which is based in India. India is a really interesting market because it's much harder for Chinese sellers to compete in India because you can't sell small little boxes from China into India and sell directly. You can only ship wholesale because of relationships between India and China. And so you lose a lot of the Chinese sellers as competition. On top of that, there's more third-party seller marketplaces in India that might actually lead to less dependency on Amazon. So we're in a company that's based in Singapore that buying brands in Southeast Asia. We're about to invest in a company in Southern Europe that's focused on that region. So we're seeing a lot of region-specific seller or aggregators. I think over time, you'll start to see category-specific aggregators more commonly. You know, We've started to see a few. What we often see more realistically is aggregators go buy whatever they can buy and then look at what they have and say, oh, we're this. That's a bit more common because people are trying to tell that narrative. It's so much of why these growth equity firms and private equity firms have struggled to invest in the space and why these companies still raise money at low multiples despite being in a very, very hot equity market. The analogy that mentioned is sort of the McDonald's analogy. We often talk to private equity investors who say, gosh, how am I supposed to invest in these companies? They all seem similar to each other. And we say, well, do you know anybody who's ever made money in franchising? And they say, yes. We say, well, could you really tell me the great unique difference between all the different franchise owners? And they say, no. And you say, do you know more than one person who's made a lot of money in franchising? And they say, yes. And we're like, what if that franchise market was 10x bigger? Do you think that might be more interesting? You know, and like you start going through it. And so I think it's just going to take time for markets to adjust and really realize what this is. It doesn't feel like a software company. It doesn't feel like a direct consumer right. business. I think people are still figuring out like, what the hell is this? And it breaks people's brains because you have to unlearn a lot of stuff to invest in the space. You have to understand that even though this is a capital inefficient type of business, it's an equity efficient business because you can over lever it on an LTV basis. So it requires right. very little equity to get these things going. You have to be comfortable with the fact that every one aggregator feels fairly undifferentiated from the next, but the assets they own have a lot of barriers to entry themselves. You have to know the space well enough where you can go do those 6, 10, 12-hour phone calls with all the different operators to actually figure out who's a little bit better, who has those 1,000 small secrets, as opposed to the one big secret. And so those are a lot of things that I think capital markets will need to adjust to. But for those reasons, that's what makes it hard to invest in the space. Right. You know, there's not those obvious follow-on rounds. There's not those obvious exits. There's not a lot of people who have IPO'd and the only couple publicly listed companies in the space have had their ups and downs. So there's a lot of hair on this space as well. You've mentioned them in passing. Can you talk about the kind of secondary and tertiary ecosystems that have come up around this space? So financing, you've talked a little bit about, but there's software companies. Like, What else is happening as a result of this Amazon third-party marketplace and aggregator world? So there's a thesis that many people have that there's a lot of point solutions or SaaS tools that sell these Amazon third-party sellers, where it's a way to express the thesis through a pits and shovels model. Providence Equity funded a business called With Assembly. That business then sold to Advent. With Assembly is the owner of Helium 10, which is probably the most popular software tool in the Amazon third-party seller space. It gives you analytics on SKUs, competitors, categories. Basically, if you're an Amazon aggregator and you're not using Helium 10 and Jungle Scout, you're not a real aggregator. It's like an easy way to be like, oh gosh, got it. You don't know anything about the space. <laughs> Jungle Scout is similar. Jungle Scout is funded by Summit. And what those companies do is they're running around aggregating other point solutions and other tools. Now, the nice thing about a lot of these tools is the market isn't big enough or the tool isn't broad enough where they're big enough to attract venture capital dollars. So you can buy them at more reasonable multiples. And I think like any space, 
there's the gold and then there's all the picks and shovels. And I think these SaaS aggregators or point solution aggregators are trying to turn themselves into software companies that service the third-party seller ecosystem. Most say that they're starting with Amazon or starting with Shopify, and then we'll go more broad afterwards. We'll see what ends up happening. Do you think more tools will come through or do you feel like that ecosystem is somewhat fixed? We don't know how many more tools will come through. My hunch is, turns out free markets are pretty good at iterating and evolving. So I bet you both the Amazon third-party sellers will evolve quite a bit. And then the tools that follow their evolution will grow as well. Say, whereas in the Amazon aggregator market, the myth of cross-selling is just that, a myth. In the SaaS tool or point solution aggregation model, it's not a myth. If you sell one tool that does one thing to an aggregator, to a collection of aggregators that all own a bunch of seller accounts, it's actually a very obvious model of how you can go buy a business and then sell it into all your existing customers. I would say there are advantages to the model. I don't know if the pace of new seller accounts will outstrip the pace of new SaaS tools that sell the seller accounts. Come back to me in two years, I'll let you know. Let's talk about the 900-pound elephant in the room, Amazon. You mentioned it. It's the most obvious risk in this world. What the $1.7 trillion elephant or whatever they're worth now? How should an aggregator think about this if you're an aggregator? And what are the big risks? And what are real risks? What are risks that people are making up? Like, Talk to us about Amazon itself. We think that this is really good for Amazon for a whole bunch of reasons. The first is if Amazon wants to be the everything store, they need to allow everybody to sell stuff on Amazon. Generally, it's just impossible for one company to keep up with the general market. And the second part is Amazon's trying to combat this narrative that Amazon is everywhere, that they might be a monopoly. And we're actually very much in the camp that they're not. We're in the camp that they really are the facilitator of these small businesses. McDonald's has this line where they're the number one creator of millionaires in America. Amazon is really the number one creator of millionaires in America. We think that this is high margin for Amazon. We think that it gives them a better narrative and gives them a better position in the market. And they wouldn't really be able to compete with the marketplace if they could. The two things that Amazon could do really is increase the FBA costs that they charge Amazon sellers. What they could also do is promote their ads business such that they take too much of the organic slots on the page and fill them with paid slots. The Amazon ads business is, I think, bigger than most people really appreciate. I think Amazon eventually will end up getting forced to make hard decisions. So for example, what happens if a three and a half star seller tries to buy a four and a half star seller? Should Amazon approve that? Right now, everything kind of happens in the free market. What happens if an Amazon aggregator tries to buy every single seller account in the same category? Is that hurting competition? So for now, we haven't seen Amazon take action on those things. I don't have any information. I don't really talk to the people at Amazon that much, and certainly not about these decisions, nor would they be interested in talking to me. But from the outside, I certainly wonder about it. And I think, gosh, they probably have to be thinking about it or have some sort of plan in motion. It's hard to imagine that there shouldn't be any rules. I think they should kind of like anything, let it be as free market as possible. But at the end of the day, there will be tragedy of the commons that don't step in and set some sort of rules and guidelines. And I would encourage them to use the franchising model of McDonald's and Taco Bell and Burger King and everyone else as their playbook. What about just like the fundamental concept of they have more data than everybody. They own the customer. They see a pot category that seems to be selling well. They're making 40% on it because through their third-party fees. But they think, you know, knowing what we know about this market, we could be making 50% on this if we just sold it ourselves. Bezos' famous quote is, your margin is my opportunity. Talk more like on the most base level, why will they not just do that and pick off all the winners in the space? And how do they respond to that? Or what have you seen that either substantiates that or invalidates it? 
So I think it's difficult when a space is already established to go compete because they can't set a rule for themselves they wouldn't set for the Amazon third-party sellers. Otherwise, that would be anti-competitive. And so I think it would be very difficult to just put the Amazon Basics category like right at the top. If you actually see Amazon Basics, it's not always the top listed asset. They actually do a pretty good job of being honest with themselves. And I think that's really important in terms of how they approach the marketplace. And it turns out that anything that's a big enough category for Amazon to care about, other people cared first. Because by the time a $1.7 trillion company cares about pillows, I promise there's enough other companies that care about pillows where it's a very well-served category. And anytime there's a category that's too small for anybody to care about, it's probably not going to move the needle for Andy Jassy if they sell more dish soap. And if this is a $50 million market, not that I know what dish soap is, but if, let's say it's a $50 million market and they go from earning $20 million of revenue in that space to 25, there's no way that they're going to risk their approach to the market and their MO by trying to earn another $5 million of revenue, in our opinion. They could, but I think that'd be a fairly irrational point of view. Let's start to look forward a little bit on the questions. Hey, we'll just keep it with risks while we're here because normally I ask it in the opposite way, but... In five to 10 years, both macro as well as systemic risks, if you're an aggregator, why did your market cap not go up by multiples? Why did you falter? What happened? What went wrong? Both with the way you're operating your business as well as the macro environment. The things that make us the most nervous are how Amazon treats its ads business and making sure that they keep the pages largely organic. Luckily, Google and Amazon's not the first business to figure out ads. And so luckily, there's general precedent sent with the Google pages and how much of the Google page is promoted versus organic. And, and we hope they kind of follow precedent that's already been set. The reason that's important is because if for tomorrow they offered up 10 ad slots, it would allow anybody to basically get that premium real estate at the top. That's right. And if you used to think, gosh, I'm ranked number one, and so that's why I'm able to get so many sales and you get dropped off the front page, that wouldn't be a very good thing. You're throwing the deck of cards up essentially in a way that would... Yeah, that makes sense. That's right. And now for the consumer, that would be bad because you're not able to go buy from the quote unquote best asset. You're only going to buy from the people who have the pockets to go sell ads against it on that given day. For the sellers, it'd be really bad because if you used to be third on the page because the top two slots are promoted and you were the third, now you might, might be number seven or eight or nine. So that would be one reason, which is the Amazon thing. That's the thing that make, like that we keep the most eye on. The other is like death by a thousand cuts at the 40% of going to FBA, turns into 41 and then 42 and then 43. And like certainly you start to see margins eroding. The other is what happens if the Amazon third-party seller space gets really big, but it gets really big not because the existing seller accounts are doing well, but because there's just so much supply because so many people realize how good it is to start a third-party seller account that you end up getting just competed away against so many people who turn categories into more and more niche categories. The other could end up being if Jet or Target or Home Depot or some of these other companies with third-party seller marketplaces end up trying to become more popular. Another one that might happen is if you're in a subscale market, let's imagine you're in Germany and you're selling something and you think you're ranked number one and someone from the US comes in and comes over on the top of you. That could be pretty bad. There could be enroachment. You also might be in the wrong category. Again, if you're in something like electronics or something else with a short half-life, your product may not be that useful anymore. I think there's a lot of reasons that an aggregation business can fail. We think that the lucky thing is that almost all of them are idiosyncratic and micro to a certain category, not really macro to Amazon, other than certain regional aspects or how Amazon treats its third-party sellers, which I think it's going to be under a lot of scrutiny to do well. What does Amazon worry about with aggregators? What keeps them up at night around this space? I think what Amazon wants to make sure happens is that their products continue to be better and better for consumers. And so far as Amazon aggregators buy amateurish accounts and make them more professional, more institutional, more reliable, and better products, that's a good thing. If Amazon aggregators start buying too many things in the same category, 
they get too big for their own good and quality starts to sink. There's lack of competitiveness. Too few people end up winning the marketplace. That would be bad. So Amazon's always been very focused on what's best for the consumer. Right now, aggregators are better for the consumer than not. They're probably going to keep their eye on it and make sure that continues to happen. Does Amazon have any approval or involvement in an acquisition? As of now, we haven't seen that happen. Will it happen in the future? Maybe. Similar to other points made, Amazon's going to have to think really hard if somebody tries to own an entire category or if somebody tries to buy an account that's stellar, even though the accounts currently owned by the buyer are not stellar. So I think Amazon hasn't had to face those questions yet and hasn't really intervened as far as we've seen. But that doesn't mean they haven't and we just haven't seen it. That doesn't mean they won't. I think they're going to probably spend like everything they do, a lot of time thinking about it and trying to make some sort of intentional decision, whatever it ends up being. One last thing on the risk question. When there's someone who you like, they've got the macro thesis correct here, you agree with that, but you don't invest in them. What are typical reasons you're passing that are specific to their aggregator? I mean, if we like all those things, we've invested pretty aggressively. So usually it's valuation or they're not moving quickly enough. If you're not growing 50% quarter over quarter in this space, like you're not that interesting relative to everybody else. This is like a very, very fast-moving, fast-growing ecosystem. And so this is just sort of a broader thing that we look for in companies is we're looking for velocity. So we're looking for founders who move quickly, who have a capability to acquire businesses, have a thesis of when they acquire a business, how are they going to make the supply chain more robust? How are they going to onboard? Do they have a coherent answer and how they're going to deal with all the vendors that they need to come on? Do they have the right staffing? One of the things that we see a mistake is when people buy too many businesses at the same time, they're not staffed appropriately and they have to rush to hire people. The people they hire aren't that good. They churn, whatever it might be. But for the most part, you're a business that's growing very quickly, that is buying assets that we agree with and categories that we like. Sometimes people are buying things in categories that we don't really love. And we agree with them sort of about those categories. By the way, it doesn't mean that we're right. It just means that there's categories we like and categories that we try to avoid. They are very detail-oriented because they think that there's so many little things that have to work correctly. They have a very, very specific answer in how they do their marketing, how they design their boxes. You want to kind of see precision in everything they do. We're probably going to invest. If we're not investing, it's just largely because of valuation or maybe because of stage because we already missed it because our entry point is usually under $100 million of valuation or something. And if you think about who you've invested in, they 2 to 3x your expectations. Your IRR ends up being double or triple of what it what you think it will be. What happened? Pace of acquisitions and pace of onboarding those acquisitions without anything breaking. It's not about like the most incredible organic growth that you've ever seen. Stable organic growth has been good enough. So what you're essentially buying is businesses that are either organically growing the same pace of Amazon, which is great, or businesses that are growing a little slower than Amazon is because theoretically you'll always be growing a little less slowly than Amazon is because Amazon's also taking into account all the suppliers or all the excess supply that's now coming on the space and where they're still able to go buy businesses at fair prices, where they're good at deal execution, where they're good at onboarding, they can move quickly. Those are the businesses that we believe are outperforming relative to normal. What about on the macro side? Like if you end up your IRs double, but nobody, I mean, they were good at execution, but nothing special. What happened on the macro side? People will have never gotten comfortable with Amazon businesses. We think that a lot of people are struggling with the fact that there's less brand affinity, that you don't own the customer, that there's lack of differentiation. And it's just may end up being an asset class that's always valued at a very low multiple because people fall into a particular bucket. And maybe capital markets never adjust where cost of debt doesn't come down. Today, cost of debt is really expensive. We're the point of view that eventually capital markets will adjust. Direct lending will come into the space. Syndicate loan markets will come into the space. That may never happen. 
I think that if that happens, I'm going to be running a really, really big Amazon aggregator because I'll try to buy all these things and just <laughs> distributing the cash flows or reinvesting the cash flows. So maybe that'll be my destiny, but that's not a terrible destiny. The positive flip I heard you say is that if capital does start entering the space, if scale does give more stability, it's like a double multiple arbitrage, essentially. All the things that people used to love about conglomerates are actually here in these types of businesses. So you have, again, variable cost P&Ls, which means that if one of your categories gets shut off because it becomes less popular, or you screw something up, or you run out of stock, and whatever happens, if you lose 10% of your revenues, you don't lose 30% of your EBITDA, you lose 12% of your EBITDA. So you have these really resilient businesses that, again, theoretically have those high barriers to entry and high moats. Now, you may end up finding that there is a beauty product or a vitamin product or whatever it might be. And people just, it goes out of vogue, like that'll hurt demand. And maybe there's a half-life to some of these products. But on balance, we really love the fact that you have this really diversified stream of cash flows that all are variable costs to your P&L, where they themselves are generally organically growing. And from time to time, you'll have an asset that you have all the inventory in the world. You just can't keep demand up because something in the market happens. And it's just really hard to predict demand. Final question is always the three-part question. We'll do them one at a time. So When you think about the story of Amazon aggregators, what is the big lesson if you're a builder, if you're an entrepreneur or executive out there? The lesson is the importance of moving quickly. The trade happened, a bunch of companies got launched, and there are going to be many, many people who make nine figures of personal wealth and maybe more because they built one of these businesses. And if you spend six months trying to find the perfect business or haggling over three and a quarter versus three and a half times EBITDA, you went from being a really wealthy individual to somebody who's now starting your second business. So I'd say the need for velocity and the need to not... It turns out just like the grit and the day-to-day activity and the blocking and tackling ends up being just as important as having like the most genius quote-unquote idea of all time. What's the big lesson for investors here? It's okay to undo a lot of the frameworks that you are used to thinking about. So I think a lot of venture capitalists, for example, think, well, it's a roll-up. I don't do roll-ups. None of them ask themselves why. You know, I could probably answer it for them. The main reason is you're financing like a fairly levered business that requires a lot of equity capital and so diluted that you have a safer path to returns, but your returns won't be venture-like. These are companies that are earning 20, 50 times returns to investors within one or two years. They kind of sound like venture bets. Well, maybe there's not enough software. We only invest in companies that we see real differentiation or we like winner-take-all markets. There's a lot of these like memes and tropes that venture capitalists use that make this a market that they can't invest in. I think we looked at and we said, you know, our job is to take risk on businesses, take as little risk as possible though, and try to earn 30 to 50x when our portfolio companies work. If like I can't use the word software, then fine. A lot of venture capitalists forget why they invest in software companies. The reason you invest in software companies is because software companies are good companies. They have high margins, they have switching costs, they have really cheap distribution, they won't require a lot of equity, and they grow really fast. There's a handful of other reasons. But you didn't invest in them because like, you use the word software. You invested in them because of all the attributes of a software company. And it turns out that these companies actually have a lot of those attributes. They grow really fast. The assets themselves have high barriers to entry. They don't require a lot of equity. And you can earn that outsized return. One of the things that I often hear from other venture capital friends of mine, is say, well, this will never trade at a high multiple. And we say, we know. You know. We completely agree. We're not buying at a high multiples. That doesn't mean you can't make money. <laughs> yeah. People are just sort of stuck in their ways. And Jesse, you and I have gone back and forth. Well, you can't build brand equity. You can't do this. You can't own the customer. We've talked about this. I agree. It doesn't make it a bad business. And I think that really smart people do a good job of finding something wrong with something and deciding because they found a problem, it's not a good opportunity. And it's one of those classic things where people love being lazy by sounding smart by being negative, a business that's almost harder to defend than to promote. And I think that a lot of people found a problem with it 
and say, well, I found my problem. So I did my job. I shouldn't invest. Right. What they didn't do is realize that the problem doesn't really matter that much. And where would you guide people who want to learn more about this world? Where can people read up or get more information about it? I mean, there's a whole spectrum of research. You can go to FBA broker has a bunch of white papers on it, the state of the market. If you just Google how to start an Amazon FBA business, you can watch YouTube videos to get up and running and figure out how these things operate. You can look at the funding announcements to a lot of these companies. You can go read the S1s and the earnings reports of uh, Tyrion, which is a creator and distributor of different products that they happen to sell to Amazon, which you know they do some aggregation, they do some product launches, it's sort of a bit of everything. But you can learn about the space through looking at their materials. So there's a lot of things that are out there. It's actually really easy to underwrite when you start just Googling it. It's really hard to hide a $300 billion revenue secret. And there's actually a lot on the space that you can go do research on. Awesome. Well, Ali, this was uh, amazing and super informative. Thank you. Thanks, Jesse. Really appreciate you taking the time. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 